As I said on the first night of the retreat, a retreat is time for seclusion. Seclusion is a key element of the path that the Buddha laid out. He said that as Dharma students, we should practice seclusion. We should take time for seclusion. He spoke to the importance of seclusion. In the days, weeks, months leading up to this retreat, uh, you know, I mean, and I spoke to people mentioned similar sentiments before the uh, in the meetings. You know, it's like, is the retreat really going to happen? You know, I don't think any of us were really sure if it would happen. And uh, in those days, weeks, months uh, before the retreat, uh, you know, there were times when I really kind of questioned, do I really want to do this? You know, this is really going to be hard, you know, given the conditions, uh, uh, you know, with, with what we've been going through in the world. Uh, uh, and uh, not a lot of people had signed up. Uh, the, the bottom line is, is, it would have been a lot easier for me not to teach the retreat. Uh, but uh, but I, I knew that this was something important. You know, this was something important. It's, it was very important, uh, as it always is, that we uh, take time for seclusion. This retreat, I knew, was very important. Uh, so, I mean, I had those thoughts in my mind, but, you know, I, I don't think there was ever any, any there was doubt, but, I, I, you know, I, I don't think I ever really uh, took those thoughts too seriously. kind of through hell or high water, I was going to have this retreat because I knew it was important. This was something that we should do. Seclusion is a key to the Buddha's prescription. And by virtue of that, it's, it's a key to Dr. Dubinin's prescription. Uh, as the Buddha said, uh, you know, he often ended his Dharma talks, as I always like to say, by saying, over there are uh, abandoned buildings. Over there are the foots of the, uh, is the foot of a tree. Uh, practice jhana, monks. Don't be heedless. Don't later fall into regret. This is our message to you. It took me a long time before I figured out what he was he meant by abandoned buildings and the foot of a tree. You know, I think early on, you know, maybe in one of the Sutta studies, I was like interpreting that as met, but those as metaphors for emptiness, you know, it's like the foot of a tree, an abandoned building, that's what we're, you know. Uh, he's talking about places to meditate, quiet places in the forest, secluded places to practice. The Dharma student, uh, in her practice, in traveling the journey of awakening, learns to incline to seclusion. We learn to incline to seclusion. As we grow in conviction and cut the fetter of doubt, this is what I talked about last night, as we develop our practice, as we learn to trust in ourselves and what we have inside and trust in the heart, uh, as we grow in conviction, uh, we incline to daily practice. I talked about that last night. Uh, instead of disinclining, away from daily practice and uh, having an inclination to avoid daily practice, our inclination shifts toward, in, toward daily practice. And it's the same thing with seclusion. We incline to seclusion because we understand, not intellectually, but in the heart, the importance of seclusion. 
So my mind was saying, oh, it would be a lot easier if we didn't have this retreat, you know? Uh, the heart was, no, this is important, you know? And I, and I decided to follow the heart. We understand in the heart the importance of seclusion. You know, we don't come to a retreat, uh, you know, as Dharma students uh, who've uh, had a taste of what this path offers. You know, we don't make this extraordinary effort of coming here to retreat, which is extraordinary, the effort that we make just getting here and, and being here during this time. We don't do this, we don't come here so that we can have some exceptional experience. You know, we don't come to a retreat for the pyrotechnics. We come for true happiness. We come to develop the heart. We come uh, for something greater. You know, I mean, I, you know, I, I wouldn't teach these retreats and I wouldn't sit retreats myself just for it to have you know, some cool experience. You know, too hard. Too damn hard for me, you know? You know these retreats are too hard. I come here because, because I know that this is part of what I need to do if I want to awaken and know true happiness in my life. I know that. That's why I come here. That's why I teach these retreats. That's why I sit retreats. And I think that's true for all of us. You know, sometimes I would go, particularly in the early years, but, you know, my, I incline much more to, to retreat now, even though it's never easy. You know, it's never easy. Uh, I don't know that I ever, ever had a retreat that I've ever, you know, some are, some are harder than others, but... I usually fall more on, under the hard category. Uh, there's certainly many things about it that are difficult and challenging. Uh, if nothing else, we're just going against the flow, right? Going against the flow of the world. You're going to do what? You know. Uh, you know. Sometimes I would I'd have like a really difficult retreat. You know, it would just be really hard. You know, and you know, like maybe not even before the retreat ended. Not, e not even after the retreat ended, maybe like towards the end of the retreat, or maybe the day the retreat ended or the next day, it would be like, man, that retreat was hard. I can't wait till I go on the next one. You know? I can't wait till the next retreat. And not because I had, you know, it was pleasurable, because I, I knew in my heart, you know, I knew in my heart what a meaningful and important experience this retreat was that I was on or was, had just ended. You ever have that experience? It kind of amazed me, you know. I remember that one of the first retreats I went on, it was so difficult, and it was like, man, I can't wait for the next one. You know? You know in my mind, I mean, logically, it's like, why do you want to go through that torture? You know? Because I know, what's on, I, I, because I know what that leads to. I know what the great benefits of this practice are, because I want true happiness, and I know that this is a path to true happiness. I know it in the heart. I know it in the heart. And this is what we learned to do. We learned to trust the heart. You were here because you knew it in your heart. I mean, this wasn't easy to come to this retreat, right? You know, you're here because you knew in your heart. Sometimes, you know, as people were signing up, it's like, you know, maybe these people are crazy wanting to go on this <laughs> retreat. You know, but I realized, you know, you, you signed up because you know in your heart that this is something of profound value and meaning in your life. So the Dharma student comes to relish seclusion, not because it's easy, not because it's some kind of a sense experience, 
that they're going to be able to indulge in that's pleasurable, uh, but because it's a meaningful and noble endeavor. It's a noble endeavor, and we're noble beings, and we want to live a noble existence. We're on a noble path, and we want to be on this noble path. The Buddha said, the mind of a monk whose effluents are ended, that's one of the definitions of awakening, whose effluents are ended, the mind isn't going out, it's going in, in, in. It's not going out, it's going into the body and to the heart. The mind of a monk whose effluents are ended inclines towards seclusion, leans towards seclusion, tends towards seclusion, stays in seclusion, delights in renunciation, entirely rid of the qualities that act as a basis for the effluence. That's what we're doing here. We're, 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 uh, we're shedding the qualities that act as a basis for the effluence. Like looking at the cell phone, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, the fact that the mind whose effluence are ended inclines towards seclusion, leans towards seclusion, the Buddha kind of gets repetitive a little, uh, tends towards seclusion, stays in seclusion, delights in renunciation, entirely rid of the qualities that act as a basis for the effluence uh, is also a strength, is also a strength of a monk. A strength of a monk. I love that. Uh, it, it, it's a strength of a monk. You know, I think we know what that means. You know, we develop a certain strength on a retreat like this, right? You're developing inner strength. We're developing inner strength. It's a profound uh, endeavor in which we develop inner strength. Don't you always feel stronger after a retreat, right? Stronger of mind and heart. So life has its seasons. We're in the spring, moving towards the summer, the fall, the winter. Uh, there we, sometimes we talk about the seasons of life. There's a time for silence. There's a time for speaking. There's a time for non-doing. There's a time for doing. There's a time for seclusion. There's a time for action. There's a time for seclusion. There's a time for action. The Buddha understood this. He understood what it meant to be a human being. That as a human being, we have these seasons of our lives and they're integral to our development as human beings. So his path is a path of seclusion and action. It's not a path of seclusion only. It's not a path of action only. It's a path of seclusion and action. Seclusion and action. I've talked about the Buddha story many times on this retreat, and I've talked about the night of his awakening, uh, that, that story of the, of the night of his awakening. It said that as he awakened, he spent seven days meditating. He experienced uh, the bliss of awakening for seven days. He sat under the Bodhi tree. We did eight. Yeah. Yeah. Seven days, come on, jeez, seven days. So he, so he sat under the Bodhi tree for seven days and experienced an incomparable bliss, an incomparable bliss, the bliss of awakening, the bliss of Nibbana, of unbinding, the fire being unbinded, the fire of clinging being extinguished completely. Dukkha eliminated, the heart completely open, completely open. Experience what we sometimes call the heart's sure release. 
the great bliss of seclusion. And as he sat there, he said, is this it? Is this it? Should I simply spend my time in this life, in this blissful state? Is this the fruition of the path? Is this the final result of all my efforts, these years of practice? Now, what, what the Buddha did, I gave a talk on this recently. What, what, he did, what he did in asking those questions was he, uh, he exercised uh, one of the paramis that, we, that he was, I mean, he was notable for all the paramis, but he, was, he witnessed, he exercised one of the paramis which he was particularly noto, noto, noteworthy for, which is the parami of truthfulness. You know, he was truthful. Is this it? You know, and in being truthful, you know, I, I once talked to uh, Tanisa Rubiku about the idea of courage, and he said, uh, courage is a function of truthfulness. You know, the Buddha had the great courage to ask, is this it? You know, it would have been easy to say, this is it. This is good enough for me. But he had the courage to be truthful and ask, is there more work to do? And what he came to realize in the heart, he understood there was more work to do, that the fruition of the path was not the bliss of awakening, but the action that issued from the bliss of awakening. It was the action that issued from the bliss of awakening. The true happiness came through action, action that was informed by the heart's true release. So he said, now the heart is open, now I have to act. Now I have to act. So as we come in seclusion to the body, that first night I talked about the body, right? You know, or was it the second night? So long ago, I can't remember. You know, we come to the body, which brings us into the heart. We begin to experience the heart sure release of love and compassion. You know, we felt it here, right, in those moments when we've, when we've let go, right? You know? I mean, we may not have let go quite in the way the Buddha let go. There may be still a little bit of dukkha on the heart, but enough in our letting, we've experienced enough letting go at different times during this retreat and in our lives uh, as Dharma students so that uh, the stain on the heart is being rubbed away and we know uh, what lies behind uh, the dukkha and what issues forth uh, when we let go, which is love which is compassion. So we experience that, right, in those moments, right? We've had those moments. You know, I think we've all felt them when we, when we dropped down into presence and into the heart, and there was, you know, and when, when we let go, there's, there's just the body and the heart, love and compassion, joy. It's right there. It's right there. It's right there. The heart's sure release. Now, of course, what the Buddha understood was that love and compassion are uh, qualities that inform action. They, like, empower action. Like, anger uh, informs hatred, you know? Or hatred informs violence, an action, you know, an unskillful action. Love informs a different kind of action. Compassion informs a different kind of action. They're qualities that inform action. So sometimes we like to say love is a verb. Love is expressed in action. It's expressed in action. 
And that's what the Buddha realized. It's not just a feeling that he had in the heart. It's a quality. He understood the heart. Buddha understood the heart. He understood that there's these primary intentions that motivate action that will lead us to happiness. That if we act on these qualities in the heart, we'll know true happiness. These two qualities of love and compassion. But to know true happiness, it, it wasn't enough just to feel those qualities in the heart and feel them emanating from the heart. He had to act on those qualities. They, true happiness would be found when he took action that was informed by the heart's true release. So he knew in his heart that his seclusion and his awakening had to be followed by action. He knew that it was a path, the path that he had discovered was a path of seclusion and action. Now, you know, when we decide what actions to take, in large part that's, uh, in terms of the content of our actions, in large part the content of what we do uh, is, is shaped by our karma. You know? And Buddha, the Buddha's good karma made him realize that what he was cut out for was to be a teacher. You know, he understood these things about life and how to know true happiness. You know, he must have had some sense that he would be able to impart uh, these teachings. And he realized, you know, this is, my, this is my gig. You know, this is what I can do well. This is how I can be of service. This is how I can give. So in, in acting uh, uh, and taking action that's informed by the heart's true release, what we do, the content of what we do, is determined by, largely by our karma. It's like, what are you good at? You know, what are you good at? We all, and that's different for everybody. You know, it's important to find that out. It's important to find that out. Yeah, for everybody, it's different. It's like, what do we cut out for? What are we cut out for? You know, my, in terms of my story, uh, uh, you know, I was always somebody who was like an organizer. You know, when I was, I remember when I was like eight or nine years old, I was like organizing, you know, events on the street, you know? You know, my mother said, you're an organizer, you're a leader, you're a leader. You're good at leading and getting things together and organizing groups and doing stuff. You know, when I was, uh, you know, I used to organize sports teams. You know, and I, when I was in college, I, I, I ran this sport, this soccer team, you know, college summer league soccer team. You know, but I was always doing that. I was always like starting stuff. You know, and that was that. That's and you know, and I love that. That's what my karma was. You know, so uh, when I started to get in touch with uh, you know, what I could do that was good. I mean, what I was doing, you know, I mean, I, w I was a salesman, as I said. Uh, I was not cut out for that. You know, and, you know, I was kind of kidding around, sort of, the other night. I mean, I was kidding around about being a salesman. Uh, but, you know, the thing about that really was, or, or at least part, in part, let's say, was it's just, I, I was not cut out to be a salesman. You know? I was not cut I was not extroverted. In that, now I worked with guys. I mean, they were they were like fish in water, you know, when they were selling, you know. And I would go sometimes. I'd work with some of my colleagues, and I was just in awe. I mean, they were just natural salesmen, saleswomen. You know, for me, it was always awkward. I always felt off balance. I just was not cut out for it. You know, once I started New York Insight uh, 
25 years ago, almost to the, practically to the day, we started uh, in, the, in the spring and summer, uh, uh, we started meeting uh, at my friend Sandra's apartment uh, and started forming uh, New York Insight. You know, myself and Sandra and Tamara, some of you know, and my friend Joseph, you know, we started New York Insight. And Gina joined us eventually. Uh, and we started that summer and, you know, this was just like, I just, I was, I, I was just in my element in, in organizing it and being a leader. After a little while, I kind of got drafted into teaching. Because I remember like in the first year or so, people said, oh, you, you're going to be a teacher? You know, we need teachers. I'm like, I ain't teaching. You know, I don't want to teach. I'd never, I never really had been a teacher, you know. And then eventually it was sort of like, somebody's got to do it. You've got to do it, you know. So, you know, they asked me to teach. Uh, and, you know, it was like the moment I sat down there, I was like, I can do this. You know, it's like, I'm good at this. I'm like, really good at this, actually, you know? I mean, I'm not bragging. I mean, it was just something like some people are good at certain things. I was good at it. It just came so naturally to me, you know? And I remember people coming up after me like, wow, you're really good at this, you know? And I was like, yeah, I know. No, just kidding. <laughs> uh, but, but, it was, but it was just, it was so natural. It was natural. I was just like totally in a flow the first time I sat in front of a class. I, was, I wasn't nervous, never nervous at all. You know, I could answer questions like boom, 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 which is really, you know, that's, that's the real challenge, you know, in teaching. Uh, just, I don't know, it was just, I was shocked, actually. I was shocked. I had no idea. I had no idea. So I was fortunate. So what's your truth? You know, what's your truth? What's your truth? You have to ask the heart. You have to ask the heart. I mean, the answer is in the heart. You know, in meditation, uh, as I talked about this morning, sometimes we learn to ask, what can I give to the meditation? What can I give to the meditation? You know, and the heart knows. I spoke to that this morning. The heart knows what you can give to the meditation. You know, the heart understands what it is that you have to give, that you have to give. Not in the imperative, but what you have inside of yourself that you can give and what your karma is in terms of what you can offer in terms of taking action that's an expression of the heart's true release. That's in the heart. But you have to ask the heart. The heart knows. You know, I, I've given this teaching so many times, you know, and I learned it from Ajahn Amaro many, many years ago. You know, and he said when you have to make a decision or you have to, you're trying to find what your path is, don't think about it, he, t he taught me. He said, pose the question and let the heart show you. Let the heart show you. You know, and I've always followed that instruction. And you know, the heart has always guided me toward what was in my best interests, to what I needed to do that was going to be an expression of love for myself. So we have to learn to reflect, right, a little bit. You know, the skill of reflection is so important. So important. I mean, sometimes things just come up. Oh, that's what I should do, uh, but learning to reflect, you know, to take time to re to take time to reflect and ask these questions. You know, what is my truth? I mean, a good question, very similar to the question we might ask in the meditation, is what can I give? I mean, truthfully, that is the question. 
You know, what can I give? What do I have to give? As we practice in seclusion, we come to the body, we come to the heart, we experience the heart's sure release, and we begin to know, you know? We begin to know if we learn to ask the heart, we begin to know what it is in terms of what we can do that will be action that's informed by the heart that will lead us to true happiness. But we have to kind of do what the Buddha did, have the courage to ask and to be truthful. You know, five years or so after I started practicing the Dharma, uh, you know, I started to realize in the heart, it's like, why are you doing this job? You know, it's like, you're not cut out for this job. You know, this isn't, this isn't who, you know, it was just like, I didn't, I was doing it for a long time at that point, like 15 years, and I never realized, you know, I mean, I knew I was always tight and tense. I just figured I'm a tight, tense, uncomfortable person, you know. Uh, I don't even know that I was tight and tense. I just was, you know, let's face it. Uh, and then I probably started to realize as I started to practice the Dharma, you're tight, tense, miserable, unhappy, agitated. And, you know, when you're doing this job, you're completely out of sorts. And this isn't what you were set out to do. This is nothing that's aligned at all with what your mother said to you when she said, you're a leader, you know? Yeah. She didn't say, you're a salesman. <laughs> I had no idea what I would do, you know, at that time. But it, it just came to me, you know? I mean, I just started asking. And again, it was sort of my karma. Uh, you know, I, I, uh, I uh, you know, was, was, was uh, uh, studying the Dharma, you know? Uh, you know, the first thing, as, my, as an organizer, I started a sitting group in my apartment. We used to meet in my, in my apartment in Stuyvesant Town. And that, you know, and then, you know, it just was like, you know, there's no center in New York, you know? It's like, damn, I'm going to start a center. And that just was like so true. You know, that was just so true. I just knew in the heart that that was what I was going to do. So there's the content of what we do. Of course, it's not just jobs or careers, you know? It's whatever actions we take, whatever actions we take. There's many forms of content, you know. You know, sometimes we give a talk like this on a retreat or any kind of a Dharma talk, and we talk about action. The first thing people think is, well, I've got to be a teacher, or I've got to start a Dharma center, you know. There's many, 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 many ways uh, that you can uh, uh, express the heart's true release. You know? uh, and that you know, many, many actions that you can take that have nothing to do with being a Dharma teacher. Most people, that's not what they're cut out to be. So, but, so, there's, so there's the content of what we do. Uh, and then you could say there's the quality or the quality of heart uh, uh, that informs what we do. So whatever the content, whatever the content, uh, you know, and of course, certain things have to fall into, uh, you know, the certain contents that's not going to jibe with the heart's true release. Uh, but whatever the content, we want to learn to take action that's an expression of, uh, of the heart's true release, which means whatever the content is, we want to learn to take action that's an expression of love and compassion and generosity. That's our charge as Dharma students, to take action 
in our lives, to live our lives, to be in the world uh, with love and compassion and generosity. And the Buddha sought to teach the Dharma, to teach what he had learned, to teach his Dharma as an act of compassion for all beings, as an act of love for all beings. His intention was to act out of love for all beings. Now this is the truest expression of the heart's sure release. This is the truest, not to teach the Dharma out of compassion for all beings, but to take action out of love and compassion for all beings. All beings. This is the truest expression of the heart's sure release, to act out of love and compassion for all beings. For all beings. So when we do this, life is truly meaningful. Just like when you meditate with the intention to practice out of love and compassion for all beings, the meditation takes on a whole other level of meaning. When we do this, we know the greatest happiness that's available to us. When we take action that's an expression of love for all beings, when that's our intention. This is what, it's, what it means to be true to the Dhamma in the heart. I mean, that's not an idea. That's what the heart, sure, release tells us. You know, that the path of, greatest, of the greatest happiness in this life is a path in which we take action out of compassion and love for all beings. So we, taking, so we take action informed by the heart's true release, action in the service of compassion, love for all beings. This is the path to true happiness. This is the path to true happiness. This is our noble intention to take action for all beings, not just for myself. I'm going to go on the retreat just for myself. You know, I'm you know, out of love for myself. I'm going to do this out of love for myself, not just for my family and friends. Yeah. For all beings, for all beings. Some of you may be familiar with a quote from Thomas Merton where he speaks to this sentiment. And just you just have to translate a little bit because you know, he's talking about God. You know, it's the same idea, the Dhamma. If you write he's talking and he's talking about a writer, you know, the the, the intention that a writer should have. He was a great writer, Thomas Merton. Merton said, if you write for God, you will reach many men and bring them joy, or women, right? If you write for men, you may make some money and you may give some, someone a little joy and you may make a little noise in the world for a little while. If you write for yourself, you can read what you yourself have written and after 10 minutes, you will be so disgusted that you will wish you were dead. <laughs> so this may seem very abstruse, right? Like the Buddha said, these things I have to teach are very abstruse and hard to figure and against the flow, or it may seem impossible. The mind can't understand this intention, really, right? Because the mind doesn't understand what it is to act out of love for all beings. The mind creates division. The mind creates likes and dislikes. I'll act out of love. It's really more like for this being and that being and maybe for my family, but not these other beings, right? I mean, that's what the mind does. The mind has a very limited capability. 
The mind can't understand what it is to act out of love for all beings. The heart totally understands that. The heart totally understands that. You know, the Buddha knew, you know, I mean, his intention was very clear. I am going to teach the Dharma out of compassion. It wasn't, it wasn't lip service. This was his true intention. I am teaching the Dharma out of love and compassion, generosity for all beings. He knew he wasn't going to be able to sit in a room with all beings, every being. I mean, in northern India, could, yeah, I mean, he only could get to a few cities, right? He knew it was going to be limited. His, the internet was lousy there, so he wasn't going to be able to do a lot of online teaching. Yeah. He didn't have a Zoom subscription. You know, he knew most of the people in his time, in his area, would never even hear his teaching. He knew that. But he knew in his heart what he was doing was for the benefit of all beings. He knew it would benefit all beings. He knew it would benefit all beings. He had no question about that. It had nothing to do with how many beings were in a room when he was teaching the Dhamma. And we know this is true. My, my, my great pet, my, my real pet peeve as a, as a teacher, or really as a leader, is because we don't understand the truths of the heart, we don't understand generosity, we think, using sort of the universal way of sort of the Dharma world, you know, this comes under the category of an editorial comment, so take what you like, leave the rest. Uh, you know, we think that the way to act in the service of passing on the Dharma that's going to be most effective is to get as many people as possible to attend events, right? I mean, that's a very Western greed-oriented way of thinking about things. Fill a big center. This is going to be the most effective way for us to pass on the Dharma. You know, stream as many talks as possible. Develop an app so as many people as possible can get a meditation instruction. You know, these are ideas the mind comes up with. These are ideas that are informed by the limits of the mind, by greed and ignorance. You know? you know, my intention, you know, you know, as best as I could try to follow through on it in doing what I've sought to do, uh, and you know, and this really sort of came into fruition for me when I started downtown meditation community was to have a community that I started and taught as a guiding teacher that was small, that was small, uh, where we didn't strive for any kind of notoriety. And I made kind of a purposeful effort to fly under the radar. Uh, now, a lot of some people didn't like that. You know, They thought, well, more people should know about this group. You know? But it's, you know, it's hard to teach the true Dhamma uh, in a room with 100 people. That's hard to do. And you don't need 100 people to, to pass on the true Dhamma. You don't need 100 people in the room to, uh, to take action that is going to serve every, all beings. I mean, I can't get all beings in a room anyway, so it doesn't really matter if I've got 100 or 10. You know, the way the Buddha said the best way to pass on the Dharma was an apprenticeship model. You know, where you had a relationship with your students. And that's what I sought. I always, you know, I mean, I don't know how much I could articulate that, but I really kind of understood. And I, I, what I understood was that uh, size didn't matter. You know, size didn't matter. You know, 
that doing what I was doing was for the benefit of all beings. I, I totally understood that. You know, I understood that in the heart. The mind might have said, oh, geez, we've got to have more people. We've got to have more people at this retreat, right? We've got to have more people at this retreat. You know, this retreat, you know, I'm teaching this retreat for the benefit of all beings. You know, not just for the 13 people that have been you know, such warriors and practiced this noble path. This retreat is offered for the benefit of all beings. You know, it doesn't matter if there's 15 people or 500 people. You know, I teach out of compassion for all beings. You know, this is why I'm teaching the retreat. This is why it was important to teach the retreat. You know, this is why it was important. This is why the heart could not say no. You know? Because what we're doing is for the benefit of all beings. It's for the benefit of all beings. Your practice is for the benefit of all beings. Not just for you, not just for your family. It's for the benefit of all beings. And in the heart, we know that, right? We know that. I mean, that when you have that intention, then how can you not come on the retreat? How can you not get on that cushion? See, when you have, I talked about this last night, when you understand that, it's like, of course I'm going to meditate. This is what I was talking about last. Of course I'm going to meditate. What are, this, is, this is like really important stuff. This is for the benefit of all beings. All beings will benefit from my practice. You know, of course, you know, the, the, this challenge that we face, right, in, in, in taking action that's an expression of the heart's true release. You know, Mara would say, who are you kidding? Dubinin's on his high horse again. He's smoking those funny cigarettes again. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 it's hard to, 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 to take these actions. It's, it's hard to live a life in which we're uh, d dedicated to doing whatever it is we do, and it doesn't have to be teaching the Dharma, that's going to be informed by the intention to have compassion and love for all beings. You know, it's easier in a lot of ways just to sit under the, it would have been a lot easier for the Buddha just to sit under the tree, right? You know? You know, and, and you know, I, you know I, I illustrated the story earlier in the retreat of, you know, when the Buddha had, uh, when the heart, when the intention arose in the heart to take action, and he realized that the best action that he could take, given his, his good karma, was to teach what arose in the mind was this is going to be too hard. This is going to be hard. Maybe even he thought, this, that's a nutty idea. You know? You know? It's going to be too hard. You know, we have to see doubt, right? We have to see doubt. Just like I saw the doubt, oh, I don't know if I should teach this retreat. Maybe you had the doubt, I don't know that I should go on this retreat. Or if I don't know that I should meditate. We need to see doubt. Uh, and, but the truth is also, you know, we don't, we don't hide from the truth, right? The truth is, it is hard. It is hard. You know? It is hard. And the Buddha knew it was going to be hard. That didn't stop him. It's not about, is it going to be hard or not? You know, one of his teachings that I've always loved, he said, there's four kinds of action. This is a talk on action, right? Four kinds of action. There's actions that you find uh, really hard to do that are unskillful and cause suffering. That's not that hard. 
Then there's actions that are really easy to do uh, that cause suffering. And then there's actions that are hard to do that lead to true happiness and actions that are hard to do that lead to suffering. Now, those actions that are hard to do that lead to true happiness are hard to do, but those are actions that we do. The other tricky one, of course, is actions that uh, are easy to do, that we kind of like doing, that lead to pain. The other two are easy, you know? I mean, the hard one is to take action that's hard to do, but it leads to true happiness. It's not really that hard to do, you know, but there tends to be doubt about those kinds of actions. So as Dharma students, we don't take action because it's easy. The Buddha didn't decide to teach the Dharma because it was going to be easy. He knew it was going to be hard. Everybody here, I think, knew this retreat was going to be hard. I mean, every retreat's hard. You know, I mean, I know a lot of Dharma teachers, you know, and, and, you know, we always talk about our retreats, you know, sitting, we talk about teaching the retreats, but also sitting the retreats. And almost to a Dharma teacher, everybody says, ah, I always dread going on a retreat. I know it's going to be so hard. You know, we all know it's going to be hard, but we all know in the heart that this is something that's in our best interests. So we don't act as Dharma students because it's going to be easy, but because it's going to be in support of the heart's true release and because it's going to lead to true happiness. Just because something is hard doesn't mean it's not leading us to true happiness. Now we learn to transcend doubt and fear through love. You know, when we act in tune with the heart, we're able to do things that are difficult. We're able to do things that are difficult. You know, when I left my job, uh, you know, in the mid '90s, and, and <laughs> you know, and decided to start a meditation center, you know, go figure, right? Uh, you know, it's people said, "Oh, you're so brave." You know, you gave up, you know, you know, health insurance and you know, all that money and ba ba ba. It was like this was like easy. You know, I mean, I knew it was going to be hard, but it was like it wasn't. I didn't. Bravery didn't enter into it. It was like I understood what was in the heart's best interests. I understood what was going to lead to happiness of the heart. It was easy. You know, it's like a no-brainer. Of course, I'm going to do this. Bravery doesn't enter into it. You know, when we know what's in the heart and we're connected to that, we do, you know? It's like when I went, I moved to Berlin. Oh, you're so brave. No, it was, it was like, you know, my heart was like so, you know, there was so, so, I was so in touch with that truth that was in the heart that guided me there that it was like, I mean, I would be doing things, you know? It's like I'd be going through all these things when I moved to Germany, and they were hard things to do, and I was like amazed. I was like, every time, and this would happen like almost every day. It's like, I can't believe you did that. I can't believe you did that. I can't believe you did that. But I just like I just went right through the fear, things I could never, you know, because I was so connected to the heart. You know, I was doing what I was doing out of love. So the template, the basic template for action uh, that's an expression of love uh, is action informed by generosity and non-harming. As Dharma students, we learn to practice generosity not in the form of taking discrete actions, but it's a way of being, it's a way of living. Tanisa Rubiku said, when you reach the levels of awakening, like I talked about last night, uh, 
you know, you, you, you know, he, he is an interesting way of talking about this because he said, you know, you need to be able to practice generosity to start to develop the path. But once you start to develop the path and you start to awaken, generosity takes on a whole other form. It becomes a function of your integrity. It's like a person of integrity is a person of, of generosity. Or if you want to think about it in another way that maybe is easier to understand uh, in, uh, in contrast to the way most people act, uh, a person of integrity is a person whose actions are informed by non-greed. Non-greed. You know, so we take action that's not informed by wanting to get something, to get money, to get possessions, to attain notoriety. We take actions because they're actions that are informed by the heart. So that's a person of, of integrity. That's a, that's a Dhamma student. That's somebody who's acting in accord with the heart's true release. Needless to say, entirely countercultural. You know, but when we, when, we, when we develop the path and we begin to act in accord with the heart's true release, there's a disinclination towards greed. You know, just like there's a disinclination towards unskillful action and, and harming. We're inclined, just as we're inclined to seclusion, we're inclined to a life of non-greed. So I think this is really, in terms of the message of the Buddha, and the message of this talk in terms of action, it's about action that we're asked to take that's an expression of the heart's true release that is informed by non-greed, non-greed that in whatever we do, whatever we do, we're not motivated by greed. You know, we're not motivated by desire for gain, for money, for status. We're motivated by the heart's sure release, by generosity, by love, by compassion. Generosity, again, takes many forms. These actions that we take that are an expression of the heart's true release take many forms. Again, we can ask, you know, what can I give? What can I do that's an expression of generosity? The heart knows, so we just have the courage to ask. It's really about having the courage to ask and having faith in the heart that it'll guide you. It's often said that the greatest gift that we can give, give is the gift of the Dhamma. Uh, this will lead us to the greatest happiness. And this is kind of what we're talking about here, right? Uh, you know, when we talk about giving the gift of the Dharma, it's not about, you know, you know it's Halloween, it's Halloween, it's Christmas, you know, here's, here's the new Joseph Goldstein book, you know, or you know, here's the new set of, I guess you can't have set of, set of Dubinin's cassettes on the Dharma talks he gave, you know, you know in 1999, you know. We're giving the gift of the Dhamma, you know, we're not giving, we're not if you want to say we're passing on the gift or giving the gift of the Dhamma, you know, we're not spouting what the Buddha said or giving a Dharma book or trying to uh, encourage somebody to be a Buddhist. We're passing on the message of generosity and non-harming, the message of non-greed. You know, we don't have to be a teacher to do that. We don't have to do that in the guise of being a Buddhist. You do have to do that in the guise of being a Buddha. You know, this is something we used to say a lot back in the day. Some of you may remember, you know, don't be a Buddhist, be a Buddha. Be a Buddha. 
So we embody the message of non-greed in our actions. We embody the message of non-harming in our actions. Whatever you do, you do in the spirit of non-greed and non-harming. One of the things I tried to do uh, as a Dharma teacher, you know, when we started, and some of you were very intimately involved with this process, was, uh, 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 was to present this way of living very overtly as, as a model, right? So, uh, you know, I lived on requisites. I've basically lived on requisites since I left my nice plush job in the corporate world. Uh, you know, I've lived on requisites, you know, food, clothing, shelter, medicine. I never had much more than that. Uh, and I've tried to model that. I've tried to model that uh, and present that model. We had sort of the Donna model. So I've lived on Donna uh, since, you know, I was living off savings the first few years because I wasn't, you know, but I was living off Donna but from what has been offered to me uh, you know, since early 2000s. So in the group, and you know, again, some of you weren't around at that time, some, some of you were very closely involved in that process. Uh, the group, not me, uh, you know, this was something the group did, you know, not just me. We did it together as a way of presenting an alternative way of living. That's the way I always looked at it. That's the way I always looked at it. This is something I, had, I do have to write a book about someday, you know, before I'm, well, I still have a few minutes left here to get these things down. So what the group did is they said, all right, well, what are your requisites? And, and Eileen, uh, uh, who was an accountant, who was a blessed member of our group who passed a couple of years ago, uh, you know, she sat down with me for a couple of days and we went over all my expenses and she had me collect my receipts for a month. You know, what do you need? You know, what do you need? What's your rent? You know, what are your expenses, da, 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 da. Uh, and we made a budget. You know, this is what he needs to live on. Uh, you know, there was health insurance on there, et cetera. And then the group would approve it. You know, and every year we would come up with a new budget based if my rent went up or we, you know, put some cost of living stuff in there. There was a little bit for savings, a little bit for going on retreat, a little bit for vacation. I mean, it wasn't, you know, you know, we're only giving him enough money for robes, you know. <laughs> it was like no designer jeans, but, you know, he can wear Levi's. You know? uh, and, you know, so this was the budget. And uh, people would offer Donna. Sometimes they'd put it in the basket. Sometimes they'd send a check, or most people did pledging. And every month, we would have a report, you know. And I would sit in front of the group, and I'd pass out the report. This is what the Donna was this month. This is what everybody knew. Everybody in New York City knew what my rent was, you know, and how much money I was spending for food. Uh, it was hard, you know. I mean, it was kind of hard, but, you know, it was like, this was important. This was important, you know. And every month the group would say, well, you know, his budget for that month, what month was $6,000, you know, and the Donna was 6200 you know, and this is great, you know. And most years we kind of just reached it almost exactly. Few years we were a little short. Some years it went over a little bit, and we put, would put that into savings. So we presented an alternate system, you know, as a way of passing on the message of non-greed, the message of generosity, that this can be done, that this can be done. I mean, I think it's one of the most important things I've done, you know, in, you know, in this role as a Dharma teacher. You know, I lived that that, that way for many years. Many years I lived on Donna, and it wasn't easy, you know? 
And you know, most of the time, I never had that much money. And the, I mean, the hardest part of it was like being so out of the mainstream. You know, I mean, you, know, you go out on a date with somebody, and it's like, well, what do you do? Well, you know, they come to the class and they put money in the basket. <laughs> I mean, I can't tell you. This is getting maybe a little too intimate, but I can't tell you how many times somebody would say to me, "And you can make an living doing that?" You know. And so I, event, I eventually I came up with a rejoinder that I was. I'd say, "Well, no, you know, I sell heroin on the side." <laughs> oh, really? Oh, that's interesting. Oh, maybe we have a future. So out of the man. I mean, you know. I mean, my family. You know, my family. You know, just like you know, I can't believe he gave up that job. That was such a good job he had. So it was hard. It was hard. And I didn't always do it perfect. And I wasn't always a perfect teacher. But there was such a happiness in living that way. And there is. I did it for one reason. It was a path, and it is a path to true happiness. I was so much happier than when I worked in corporate America. I, was, I knew the happiness of the heart. I continue to know the happiness of the heart by living this way. That's why I did it. This is why the Buddha did what he did. This is the path to true happiness. You know, we take action imbued with generosity. We seek to live a life of non-greed for one primary reason. It's the path of happiness. Somebody once said to me in that same context, oh, you're a do-gooder. No, I'm a happiness seeker. I'm a happiness seeker. I want to be happy. That's why I do what I do. This is a path of happiness. You know, what the Buddha said, if beings knew what I knew about generosity, they would never let a meal go by without sharing it with somebody. Because what he knew was that generosity was a path to true happiness, that if you share, you'll know true happiness. But beings don't know that. They don't know that. There's a great happiness and generosity and non-harming. I think the title of this talk I thought would be, and I'll end soon, uh, Seclusion and Action. And I thought maybe the subtitle could be, The Buddha Wasn't a Stupid Guy. You know? You know, he lived a life of pure generosity because it was a life of true happiness. Because he was seeking the greatest happiness there is. And that's why he lived the way that he lived, because it was a way to know the greatest happiness, a true happiness. So we need to understand this. You know, we need to understand this ourselves and in the world, that the greatest happiness is in giving. It's entirely countercultural. You know, what I believe, and maybe this is another editorial comment, uh, maybe we could put tabs on the, uh, these are the editorial comments, you know, the world will only change when people come to understand this. That a life of greed and harm causes, is, brings about suffering. That a life of generosity is a life of happiness. People don't understand that. You know, until people understand that this is the way to happiness, they'll continue, will continue to follow a life of trying to find happiness in getting and being. So this is our message. As Dharma students, we pass on this message not by our words so much, the Dharma teacher does that a little bit, but mostly by our actions. Mostly, you know, you know, you have to learn this somewhere, you know, so that's part of our job, you know, is to teach this, teach the children. 
You know, this is my Crosby, Stills, and Nash and Young talk. You know? I mean, I learned this from my mother. I learned this from my mother, not because, and I've, I've racked my brain because I, I, I'm trying to remember if she ever actually vocalized this. I learned from my mother by watching her actions. You know, my mother lived a life of generosity. First of all, being a mother to five children. You know, uh, you know, my father. She was a saint. You know, uh, but she was a school teacher. She taught first grade. You know, how many kids? You know, in a, in, a, in a poverty area school, she taught to read. Do you know how many people she helped? And she loved it. She was in her element. She was so happy when she was teaching. When she was home, but when she was in the school, and I, I kind of knew her school a little bit because I saw, actually sold textbooks there. So, <laughs> so she was so happy as a teacher. She was so happy as a teacher, and I saw this. I saw this. I understood where happiness came from. It came from helping others. It came from generosity. Uh, you know, when my mother was dying, you know, uh, I would spend time at her deathbed, and I would say, "Time for a little meditation, mom." You know, and you know, and we would do meditation. You know, and then and then it got towards the end of her life, and uh, very much towards the end, the last days, she was on a respirator, and she had the tube down her throat. You know, and was like, I, still, I remember one day, I was like, I don't think we can do the breath. You know, it's going to be really hard to do meditation on the breath. And uh, I knew she was ready to, she was getting close to dying. And, uh, you know, as a teacher, I, 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 I was really wanted to see if I could help her meet that moment of death with a joyful heart. You know? So I said, let's, let's, do a, let's reflect on joy. You know, and at some point as we got into the reflection, but it was probably early on in the reflection, I said, you know, she's got the respirator and she's, you know, and I said, you know, think about when you were a teacher and when you taught those kids and this smile came to her face that I, I, I could never describe it. I mean, the only word that comes is beatific. You know, there was just this smile of pure happiness on her face. About an hour after that, I signed the papers. They took her off the respirator. A few hours later, she died. <coughs> so a life informed by the heart's sure release. Metta for all beings. A life of generosity is a meaningful life. It's a life of true happiness. You know, the goodness that we develop in living this kind of life is what we leave behind. It's what my mother left behind. It's what my mother left behind. You know, today, you know, we still receive the gifts the Buddha left behind. The fruits of his generosity. You know, after my mother died, her goodness was so profoundly evident. You know, and you know, in her funeral, which I had the you know incredible fortune to preside over, it was a small group, just my brothers and sisters, and a few family friends, other relatives you know, in the cemetery in our hometown, and uh, we all talked a little bit, and everybody just talked about my mother's goodness, but the thing of it is, is like we were all feeling it so much in the heart. I mean, it was just like, just, you know, 10 people standing around, and it was just like 10 bodies and 10 hearts. 10 bodies and 10 hearts. I feel it now, you know? I mean, I feel it now, her goodness in the heart. 
feel the goodness and the love and the generosity of all the beings you know, I've been blessed to know. Don't we feel that all in the heart? Your goodness in taking this action on this retreat will continue on long after tomorrow. will continue on long after you're no longer here. And it will always be in my heart. So let's just close our eyes for a second. 